let's read Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to uh, 41 this morning. So join me and then we'll pray. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with, took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, this part of your word. Thank you that you've given this gift to us that we get to hear the sound of your words speaking over us and this story that is so familiar for many of us. God, would you uh, open our eyes and our hearts once again to anything that you might have to direct us in, teach us, guide us, speak to us. Holy Spirit, would you uh, take this time in your word and make it meaningful to each person here and to our families and to our community as a church and for your purposes, we pray in your name. Amen. So this story, by the way, I, had to, I was studying and writing on the airplane, so I kind of feel storm-tossed in preparing to teach today, but um, there's a danger with a story like this, a couple dangers. First of all, one danger is that you could read this story and think that it's mythological, right? That, you, that early Christians took things about the life of Jesus and kind of put them up so that they could deify him and make him seem more than. I mean, lots of religions do that. And so I want to acknowledge that maybe some people here looking in on the Christian community might think like, yeah, these are just stories that, uh, that, that Christians kind of made up. And I think what you see in the context of this uh, section of God's word is that that's not the case at all. Because you have little details like there's other boats with him. Jesus is in the stern of the boat with a cushion. You have the reaction, which isn't complimentary. That is an eyewitness account that gives some details about the situation that's taking place in this story. I think it's more than a myth. I think it's, like all of the Gospels, a um, historical account of what's taking place that's backed up by various things. And so I would say that's one mistake we can make. And, and then the other mistake probably... A lot of us here might be uh, more akin to this morning is that we could categorize this as like a nice Sunday school story, right? Jesus calmed the storm, and he can calm the storm in your life, right? And, and, and while that's true, and that is true, uh, that's not entirely the point of this text. I don't think it's in its original kind of context. And so I, I think that we can make that mistake and we can miss for our desire to see a heartwarming story here, the, the real kind of thing that God might want to share with us this morning through his word. And so uh, please don't do that. And please don't say, yeah, I like I've done a million times and say this story I've heard, I've listened to, and I've also heard the other accounts in the other gospels. And yes, I know that Jesus calms the sea. I think there's something for us this morning. And so uh, let's go ahead and dive right in. And the first thing I want you to note is that in verse uh, 35, Jesus says to the disciples, get into the boat 
and let's go to the other side. And it's important to note that as we approach this text this morning because uh, there are uh, many reasons why this metaphor of storms could be used in our lives, right? And a lot of those are self-inflicted. Okay, so I am with you, maybe more so than you, I would assume, a, the king of self-inflicted gunshot wounds is what I like to say. Trials and tribulations that come to my life because I make a mistake. I do something wrong. I sway from the path of Jesus, the way of Jesus. Uh, that's not what we're talking about this morning. This is actually a sermon and a message and a section of uh, a scripture that points out to us that the disciples were doing exactly what God told them to do. They're following Jesus. They're doing what he said. They get in the boat and they follow Jesus. And so while we could have all kinds of trouble for many reasons, this particular text is telling us there is trouble, there are storms, there is a reality where when you're obeying God, when you're doing exactly what you should be doing, there's something coming your way. And so uh, right off the bat, that leads us to realize that God is a God, according to this text, who will send us into the storm for his purposes, okay? He'll send us into difficulty, and he will do that, and sometimes within the midst of that storm and that reality, we can wonder if we have faith at all, and so uh, let's just dive right in a little more. Verse 35, we see, as I said, that there are, there are in the boat, and there are other boats, and as we set up the context of this story that's taking place. Remember back in verse one of chapter four that Jesus was sat teaching parables, but where was he sat? He was in a boat, right? He said to the disciples, pull up the boat. This is my pulpit for the day, the backdrop of the Sea of Galilee behind me, waves swishing, and here I have this seven foot wide kind of uh, boat that can seat 15 people, uh, and, and here's my pulpit. And so Jesus goes in and he starts to teach the parable of the sower, the soils, and he begins to kind of break down the power of the word of God. He begins to break down the kingdom of God and what it looks like in pictorial form, lots of agricultural things. But then he gets to the point where he's going to send the disciples into this boat that he was in and send them off. Now, we are helped a little bit. We don't have to imagine what this is fully like, because we have some pictures a few years ago, uh, they discovered in Israel, I had the opportunity to go and see this, uh, what they call the Jesus boat. I don't know if you guys have seen this Jesus boat, but it is, uh, they discovered it. It's the hull of a boat at, dated to the time of Jesus and actually is almost complete. They had to bring it out of the ground very carefully because it was eroding and falling out. But this is what, if we look at the next picture, a little better picture, uh, the whole of one of these boats would look like in Jesus's time and is discovered right there by the Sea of Galilee. Not necessarily the boat, but a boat that was discovered at the time of Jesus. And here's what it might have looked like all put together. And so we have this reality, like a 26-foot long boat, seven foot wide, holding about 15 people. This is what we're looking at as we dig in. And then picture yourself. Jesus has been teaching all day long. He's been waxing eloquent. He's been giving these parables of the kingdom, and he's tired. They're tired. The disciples have been holding the boat with the waves swishing. And then as he sends them across the other side, they're hoping for a nice, cool evening with glassy seas to get to the other side to what Jesus has prepared for them over there. Then we have the story that we've been talking about for 2,000 years. This, verse 37, windstorm arose. The Sea of Galilee 
I don't know if you know this, the Sea of Galilee is a sea that uh, it's heat from the sea mixed with the cold air coming over the mountains around it can whip up a storm just like that. And crazy tempest-like conditions can result uh, almost like uh, clear air turbulence. I don't know if you've ever uh, flown or how many times you've flown an airplane, excuse me. I just did that this week, and we were going through a section, looked perfectly fine, and all of a sudden the airplane just starts shaking and shaking and shaking. And you're like, what's going on here? Well, that's clear air turbulence that you don't know is coming, and then now it's here. And it just shocks people. You put your seatbelt back on. That's kind of what we're talking about here. And this is no minor lake that it's taking place on. It's 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, with depths of 150 feet. This is uh, much bigger, for example, than Lake Payette and McCall, which is 8 miles long and 2.5 miles wide. So imagine a vast sea. You know as a fisherman, you've been on it many times, and as you're there, you know these storms can kick up. You're in the middle of it, and you're like, oh, no, this is happening right now. That's what's taking place with this storm. Water is swamping in. Um, you're getting stuck on this sea that you know is dangerous. So three things we're going to look at today. First of all, this storm and is a metaphor, but it's a true event, and it, it talks to us about a few different things. First of all, the presence of Jesus in the storm. Secondly, the powerful presence of Jesus in the storm. And thirdly, the peaceful, calming presence of Jesus in the storm. And so first of all, verse 38, look at what we looked at already. It says that Jesus was there, and he was asleep in the stern. Now, just to, again, try to tell the story a little bit. Uh, who has been uh, raking leaves in the autumn here in Boise this past couple weeks? A few of us, right? And uh, dads, uh, at least in my house, that's primarily dad and sons. That's our job to do. And so I know that you can rake a bunch of leaves and then come in for uh, like lunchtime. And then the next thing you know, you're out like a light. You know, you've just, you've done your job, you've set yourself up with the house chores that are now finished, and then you just fall asleep. And no dog barking, no child screaming, no wife asking nicely is going to get you out of that recliner or out off the couch because you are out of it. And that's kind of how I picture Jesus here. He has done the work of preaching. He has taught all day long, and this is his preacher's nap on Sunday afternoon, so to speak. Uh, it, he is just out for the count. And that's when the disciples come up and it says they woke him. Now, uh, do you think in this story that the disciples were coming and they said, excuse me, um, Jesus, hello, sir, uh, we have a little bit of a problem here. There's a few cups of water entering the boat. We would like you to consider uh, taking some action on our behalf. Uh, do, do you think that that's what this story portrays? It's not at all. It says that they were screaming Jesus, please come, help us. Don't you know that we're perishing? This is not the picturesque storm of a fairy tale or a nice painting. This is actually the scary real-life tempest in which they're going to die. <clears throat> and while they were fishermen, Jewish people did not like the sea. Jewish people thought of the sea as a place where all their worst fears would be realized. They thought of it as chaotic, as a place of monsters. Uh, later in Mark's gospel and the other gospels, we'll see that they thought of it as a place where ghosts even would be on the water. 
And so generally, they did not care for this, and so their worst fears are being realized. And in realizing their worst fears, they ask a question that, uh, I'm sorry, I know your teacher said to you that there are no dumb questions, but I do think that this is a dumb question. And they said, don't you care? For them, it's a dumb question. Why? Well, think about what's taking place here. Jesus is in the boat because he cares about his disciples. He's present with them. Jesus is in this world because he cares about his disciples. He wouldn't have come. He didn't need to be there. He didn't have to be there. The Bible says in in John 3.16, that famous verse that God so loved the world that he felt this compassion towards this see this cosmos, this, this, this reality that he then sent his son and then Jesus came into the world. Jesus had brought them into his inner circle. Jesus had said, I am your rabbi, I'm your teacher. And, and then they asked this question, don't you care? So let me ask you a question. Like, I think it's a little more reasonable for us, but don't we often find ourselves asking God the very same question? God, don't you care? Don't you care about the waves, so to speak, and the, metaphorically the, the water coming in and overwhelming my life? Don't you care about the situations that I am finding myself in? And in the reality of this storm, they were losing sight of the fact that Jesus had already told them, you are going to go to the other side. They lost sight of Jesus and his care for them. They lost sight of his word and what he said would happen to them. They doubted his love. They doubted his word to them. And this is not a new phenomenon um, in the Bible. If you look in Isaiah chapter 40, I think we have it up here on the screen, um, even in the Old Testament, this was something that God's people did over and over again to God, to Yahweh, to the creator of the heavens and the earth. And this is what it says. It says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord? And my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. So really the first point today of this uh, brief message is that Jesus is present with his disciples. And he's present with you in whatever storm that you're going through, despite what life might look like. And that is basic, but it's a reality that we must remember. We sang about it this morning. Like, there's another in the fire. There's another in the waters. And, and perhaps this week you've been saying to the Lord, like, my way is hidden, God. I don't think that you're seeing the reality that I'm living in. It's overwhelming. It's difficult. It's challenging. I'm scared. I'm fearful. And the first thing that God would say through his word this morning is, I'm right here with you. I'm present, I'm aware, I see you. Second, look at verse 39 and verse 40. As they're successful, waking Jesus up, as they get the Savior roused, so to speak, what does he do? He stands up, uh, whether it's on the stern of the boat or If he raised a hand, I don't know, but he he stands up and he simply says, peace, be still. Peace, be still. 
The lordship of Jesus over creation is exercised in this moment in a rebuke that is unrecognizable for any other human being to ever accomplish. So uh, again, uh, has anyone ever said to the weather, please, or not even please, just stop doing what you're doing? Um, I had a, a situation when I was younger. I was on uh, my way to uh, the Alta Snowbird area. I was wor- living in Salt Lake, driving up to uh, that area as I was um, a ski bum, basically working at a ski lodge. And as I went up there, it was a huge snowstorm, and I saw one of the highway signs kind of waving in the wind, and I was like, that's going to fall. And as I drove by, it literally like, fell down. Um, now, I obviously am full aware that I did not cause that sign to fall, but that's the closest that I've ever been to anything like that ever happening. Uh, and, and so maybe there is someone here who has the ability and the uh, spirit-empowered uh, gifting to stop the weather from happening. I don't know. I mean, even the, clo- the other closer thing that I've experienced, and we've all maybe experienced prayer, where like the Bible says in James 5, we can pray and God, like Elijah, can stop the weather. I mean, I did experience, we, in our mission in England, at one point ran an event for like 8,000 people. And uh, as we were there, and as you know, in England, it rains all of the time. So outside events are really not wise to do, but we did them anyway. Uh, So we're there, uh, you know, we're a small church. This entire event is being paid for. It's like 13 grand, which for us was a massive amount of money. And it's paid for because there are uh, entry fees that the county itself kind of had, had uh, put on before we took over the event. And so I'm thinking like, okay, we need this many people to come. And as we're, we're there and it's just like pouring rain, just pouring, pouring, pouring. And I'm just like, oh God. And I'll tell you what I didn't do. I didn't stand up and say, wind, be still. What I did do was cry and weep and cry out to God saying, oh God, please, would you stop this? And thankfully, like the, the rain did. 5.45, the gates are supposed to open and it's like someone just turned off the faucet. And I was just like, praise God, he is good. You know, so giving him the glory, no credit for myself because I was not faith-filled in that moment, I'll tell you that. That's the closest I've experienced. I don't know what your experience is, but... Jesus here doesn't do that as the Lord of creation simply says, stop, and it stopped. And the disciples perhaps would have been recalling the words of Psalm 107 where it says this, verse 23 to 32 in Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wits end. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. You have to think as good Jews that they would have been thinking, oh my gosh, this is the Lord, Yahweh, of the Old Testament. And so they see the power of God. They see the power of his voice. As Psalm 29 says that it can split the cedar, that it can cause a deer to give birth. The glory of God thunders in his voice. But what's their response? Their response wasn't, Jesus just talked about the parable of the sower and the power of the word. 
and now we've seen that in action. That makes sense, surely. Their response was actually more fear. More fear than they had when the sea and the tempest itself was blowing. It's, Jesus has to say to them, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? This is the third of three rebukes we find in this text. First of all, G, uh, the disciples rebuked Jesus for sleeping. Second of all, Jesus rebuked the sea. And now here, Jesus rebukes them for their fear. There's kind of debate. Is this Jesus being harsh with them? Is this Jesus, some people say, giving a little nickname like, oh, little no faith. That's kind of you guys, my little puppies. Um, I don't know, but I do know that either way it's a rebuke because it's pointing out that they are not trusting in the Lord that they claim to trust in. Their circumstances are revealing their lack of trust. And, and that's something I want us to reflect on this morning as we, before we get to our last point, and, and that is this, that think about it. We all know this story, correct? We've all read it thousands of times, if not hundreds of times. I don't know. Maybe it's your first time. But all I'd say is that we know this story, and yet that reality of the fact that faith is always in the future is grasping us this moment. Because you can know the story. You can know the God. You can know the reality. You can have answered prayer. You can have situations in your previous life. But when it comes into the present, and then you realize that faith is the evidence of things not seen, that faith is always future, you realize, I'm little faith. It's fine to have the theology and the doctrine, and that's very important to know who God is, to know what it means that he has the ability to hold the world together by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter 1. This is what he's doing right here. That's important, but the question still remains. What happens as you walk in obedience to him and he allows a storm to come into your life? What, what is your response right now? Faith is always future. You see, it's great to be thankful for the past, but faith is always future. The second thing I see in this powerful presence of Jesus here that it's producing is this great fear that I mentioned a minute ago. Um, there's three, like there are three great or three rebukes, there's three great things in this text too. So look, again, through the passage, it says, first of all, there was a great windstorm. Then Jesus spoke, and there was a great calm. And then finally, the disciples are filled with great fear. Okay, and this is the uh, Greek word. Definitely not a Greek scholar, but I know this one word here. It's the word mega, basically. So mega storm, mega calm, now mega fear in the disciples. And, and ask yourself, why is it that they have this fear more so than they did at the beginning? Why is this the mega fear? This is where it's clear that Jesus calming the storm of your life is not the main or only point in this text. There's something else that God is getting into. First of all, I want to say, I'm with you. Now he's saying, I'm powerful in my presence and I'm going to reveal myself to you. The entire gospel of Mark is all about who is this Jesus. And what he's revealing to the disciples here is that he is the very creator, the very sovereign God who is in the midst of their presence. And that fills them with this mega fear. Um, 
This is a picture that the early church needed. Okay, and we always have to think when we're interpreting the Bible, like what did this mean to the original hearers? Think about the early church in the context in which Mark's gospel was written. They were buffet, buffeted by Rome, uh, by the Caesars. They were persecuted over and over again. And so uh, much of first century Christian art was actually depicting this idea of this boat in the storm. And here's a, a picture that actually our very own missionary from Rome, Hope Harrell, uh, has taken this kind of ancient art and kind of painted this. I think it's beautiful snapped a picture while I was there, and I, and I want to get it printed or something. So amazing and so powerful. But they needed this because of all the threats and all the pressures and all that could overwhelm them. They needed to be reminded. Jesus is majestic. Jesus is king. Jesus is ruler. And so what God is doing in the disciples is saying, I want to, through the circumstances that reveal your lack of faith, show you and give you an opportunity once again to wonder at who I am, not just what I can do, but who I am. And they're filled with this fear. Why? Because what you fear most is, is dictated by what is most powerful in your life. And so, uh, all of us this morning need this revelation because the reality is we come into this place with many fears. Statistics show that this is an age of great fear. Uh, I think I mentioned this when I preached on the book of Ecclesiastes at the end. It says that the end of all things is to fear God and to keep his commandments. And, and there's many fears that people have of water and small spaces, Count me in on the small spaces one. Um, the top fear is public speaking. I can understand that, why, why that is, is dangerous and difficult. Um, and I think the disciples are experiencing something here, this idea of xenophobia where we fear something that is very strange and different than us, usually used in the context of foreigners or those that are from a different nation. But it can mean anything that is foreign or different, and they're just awed by this reality of who this person is that they're stood right there in the boat with. What could this person do to us? What, this, what could this person lead us into? What, what could this person have over us in his power But they also see through that, that when you fear God, you don't have to fear anything else. These men, as you all well know, end up being in this situation, in this circumstance, in this story, and ones like it in the Gospels. And these end up being the very same men in the context of the early church who go into the world, who don't fear death, who don't fear political pressure, who don't fear um, the ramifications of what it meant to be Christians, and they went full on, full send into that reality and gave it all to Jesus. How could they do that? Only because they were filled with great fear of a holy God. Not fear in a tormenting way, but in all way that says, God, anything else that I could do to displease you compared to all these fears that I have means nothing. Finally, what else is Jesus doing here with the disciples? Turn actually to Mark chapter 6 as I bring us kind of into our last point. Um, I, don't, I think you know this, but there's two stories in Mark's gospel and in all the gospels about this storm kind of environment. Um, and so I want to read 
Mark 6, we've seen Jesus being present, his powerful presence, and now I think we're going to see something else about his peace in the midst of this storm and his presence and what he's doing with the disciples. Mark 6, 45 to 52, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went on up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished. So the reason I, I want to read this is because overarching this passage, I, I, I'm trying to ask that question, like, what is Jesus doing with the disciples? And uh, it, it, I think it's told here by looking at the two scenarios. So first of all, Mark 4, Jesus goes with the disciples into the boat. Mark 6, Jesus makes the disciples go into the boat without him. Mark 4, Jesus sleeps among them in the boat. Mark 6, Jesus prays over them, overseeing what they're doing while they're on the sea. Mark 4, the storm rises up quickly. Mark 6, the storm is in the fourth watch of the night. Mark 4, the disciples go to immediately to Jesus because he's right there. Mark 6, they're rowing slowly and painfully throughout the night before they can then see Jesus eventually. Mark 4, Jesus stops the storm immediately. And then in Mark 6, he calls them, his disciples, to him on the water. And then once he enters the boat, he stops the storm. Okay, so there's a lot of differences there, right? We read over this. It's like we've, we've read this story so many times. It becomes familiar. We don't recognize that. But what is Jesus doing in that? Why are there two stories in the gospel? And why would they be represented to us? Well, here's... Um, something I believe already but was helped with this past week by a pastor named John Mark Comer who I want to really recommend a particular message on YouTube called A Non-Anxious Presence. And I'm going to, I've adopted and, and kind of taken some stuff from him. I'm going to share with you quickly as I close up. But I believe that Jesus is forming his disciples into his image, into his peaceful, calm, non-anxious image. I believe that's what he's doing with us as well. So um, the way that John Mark Comer talks about this from other books by psychologists and things that he's read is, first of all, that this world in our culture has this cycle that is basically like pictured as a storm. So if you put that slide up there, um, maybe you've, just by even these words, you can kind of react to like the reality we've all been living through, through COVID and then after COVID, through Ukraine war, through all these kind of things, through Twitter and through all just the nonstop reality of our Western culture. First of all, he says that, uh, the psychologist says that there's reactivity that takes place, right? So we get our news now by like news reporters reporting on what was tweeted on Twitter, right? And it's like 24-7, this is what's happening, and everyone's reacting to it nonstop, That, he says, leads to a herd instinct where then we all begin to follow these I would say tides or waves 
and just say, yes, that's what's important right now. And we react, in our reactivity, we start to herd around certain causes and things. And then as we see wave crash against wave of these movements, we begin to blame each other and say, uh, actually, I think that your herd instinct is worse than my herd instinct. And that begins to say, well, we've got to do something here. We've got to fix this. Like, batten down the hatches, fix the boats. We have to actually find a quick fix to this. And so people start laying Band-Aids on things. I mean, whether that's politically or culturally, whatever it is, we start to kind of do that. And then finally, that leads to people overall who have no lack of differentiation in them of what their reality is, their identity is, and they just flow with these stormy tides and waves in the ocean, and we're all kind of stuck in this cycle. Does that sound familiar to you at all? It does to me. And what he, John Marcomer, kind of recommends is something that he calls, and actually I've called and taken from him, the way of Jesus in peace. And so I'm just going to briefly say this and leave the kind of application for you to consider a little bit more. And so first of all, what Jesus is in the disciples, or excuse me, in the Gospels, is he's somebody that actually has the ability to simply slow down and be who he is. If you read the Gospel accounts, including Mark chapter 1, you'll see that Jesus never did anything out of reaction. He did it out of his identity with the Father and out of intentionality with what the Father wanted him to do. He said, I only say the things the Father wants me to say. I only do the things the Father wants me to do. This is contra our culture. This is the way of Jesus is different. So I'm saying that Jesus is propositioning to us an entirely different way of life than what we currently sometimes live in, a slowed down life, a restful life. We don't have time to get into all this. Noah, our worship pastor, beginning in January, he's going to do something called Cultivate. He'll start with Sabbath, and I encourage you all to go through his kind of year-long process to see, try it out. See if you are living in the rhythms that God has established for us from the beginning. Six days off or six days work, one day off, times of rest throughout the year. See. Or are your circumstances storm-tossed and revealing that there is not a rhythm to your life? And so that's what this pastor kind of recommends. And then thirdly, community. That the non-anxious way of Jesus is a way where we live in community and that's, that becomes a priority for us. And then we take time to pray and reflect, and I don't have time, but more. What that produces, anyway, the way of Jesus, is a freedom to be different than the situation that you're in. Okay, so, and that is what he calls this non-anxious presence. All I'd say is that we're on the cusp of that even this week, right? Uh, here's the reality, um, I have stopped watching news, generally speaking, because I don't find it helpful, um, though I try to be aware of what's happening. I do know that there's an election happening this week, as an example, and you're going to have a lot of people reacting to that and coming into a herd instinct that say, like, Ben, you better vote this way, and if you don't, our democracy is going to go downhill. And then you're going to have other people over here saying, if you don't do something, then we will live under a totalitarian state, and we've got to save this country. What would it look like for Jesus' people to recognize that he's with us in this storm, in our culture, everything that's happening. He's powerful. 
The Bible says all rulers have only power as it's given by God and that they live under the reality of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And what would happen then if we entered into our culture this week and said, yeah, I'm going to vote, but, um, you know, God's in control and just at peace with that. And so appreciate, man, you have some concern there and I get that. I can empathize with that concern, but I'm just going to enter into this with just something different, a little different way of Jesus. And then just take that and we go from the big national political scale to our local reality or to even our families. Imagine you as fathers going into this week and instead of reacting and, and, and blaming and, 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 and shifting everything onto your families, actually saying like, you know what, I, I see the, the cries and the screams and the difficulties and the, the, the lessons and the responsibilities I have here. I'm going to enter into them because I know that Jesus is forming me into his image. And now I'm going to bring that image of Jesus and bring that reality to bear on my family and his love and his care for them. Rather than just get overwhelmed and say, Jesus, don't you care about me? I've got all these responsibilities. Yeah. So that's a totally different way of life. And you could do that over and over and over again in any area of your life and see how recognizing the presence of Jesus and the power of Jesus and his peace and what he produces would change radically those around you. And I think that that's what God's doing. I think that's what he's doing. That's why there are two stories in this gospel and in the other gospels this way. Because have you ever found out the reality that God puts you in the same circumstance twice? And he says, this is what I'm doing in your life. This came, became very real to me this week. I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense, Lord. And when we stop fighting, when we slow down, when we enter into what God has for us and say, you are forming me, Jesus, in your image, I'm okay with that. It's a completely different ballgame. Be still, Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Let God still your heart today, whatever fears, anxieties, difficulties, storms, whatever it is, let him just say, I'm here, I see you, I have power, take my peace and go into this world this week and give it to other people. Um, as we close, that's all made possible just because of Jesus. We're going to take communion, um, and I'd like to prepare our hearts by reading Mark 15, 33. The end of Mark's gospel, it says, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And bystanders around heard and said, He's calling to Elijah, Others said, wait, let's see if Elijah will come down. Jesus uttered a loud cry then, breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Jesus lived the storm of this life to the very end when darkness was surrounding him. He tasted the fears and anxieties we have and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then came through it and said to Telestai, it's all finished. And through that, the centurion recognized this is somebody different. This is the son of God. 
And so as we take communion, come with your fears, come with your anxieties, come with all of those things and say, Jesus, you're forsaken for me. You took on all these things for me. Thank you for dying. I confess my lack of faith that's expressed in my circumstances. Please change my heart again and make me in your way to represent you well this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to reflect on your word. I pray, God, that it would be helpful just viewing this account and this storm and what you did. And I pray for the work in my life that you're doing and the work that you're doing in my brothers and sisters that we would be made in your image. Forgive us where we fight. Forgive us where we have little faith, God, and change our hearts, change our lives. Help us bring your presence into the reality around us because you give it to us as we trust you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.